Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Thursday, July 25th, 2019, and this is show number 742. Well, it's weird doing the show on a Thursday because I have no live audience. I got nobody to talk to. Kevin's not throwing spitballs. Sandy's not in there defending me. Frank's not making bad jokes. Rick didn't do a sound check. I mean, there's just so much I miss from not having the live show. But I needed to get this show out for you because remember, we have no live show coming this Sunday because Steve and I are headed out to MaxDoc on Friday. That's also why you're getting the show way early this week. I've got a couple of articles this week, and then Bart is back with another installment of Security Bits. The following week, we'll be in Canada for a week on a lake with the kids. I expect this to be a lot more relaxing than riding 1,219 miles on a bus and taking seven plane flights and staying in four hotels to see an eclipse in Chile. This will be a lot more sleeping in, playing games, playing in the pool and lake, maybe some boating, and definitely some wine tasting. So I don't know exactly what day I'm going to publish the show next week, but I hope to get it out while I'm in Canada. I've got a few great reviews already from contributors, and if you do have something for me, I would really appreciate by getting it maybe early next week. That would be great, like Tuesday or Wednesday. If I get enough content, I'm probably going to save some of it for the following week because I don't get back... Uh, until Thursday, which means I only have three days to do the show and I have homework due and programming by stealth. So the third week, I'm still going to need content. So if you thought you were too late getting this into me, I definitely could still need, uh, could still use some content. So bring on the recordings. This week, our guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond is Laura Kane. She's a CFA, a CPA, and head of Investment Themes Americas for a company called UBS. UBS is an investment bank and financial services company. At UBS, Laura specializes in something called sustainable investing. As part of her research, she has written several articles about investing through a gender lens. Now, I asked Laura to come on the show not to talk about investing, which is kind of mean since that is her specialty, but rather what she has discovered about the impact women have on the success of a company. It is, of course, a little bit off the beaten path for chit-chat across the pond because it is not a technical discussion, but I find discussions of diversity to be very interesting. I learned a lot, and I hope you enjoy it, too. You can listen to this episode in your podcatcher of choice under chit-chat across the pond light or the full chit-chat across the pond feed, or, of course, you can listen to it right over at podfeed.com. Look for episode number 603, Laura Kane on the effect of women on business success. If you haven't subscribed to SetApp yet, you might want to. In case you haven't heard of it, SetApp is a subscription service for $10 a month that gives you access to a plethora of applications. As long as you stay subscribed, you have access to these apps. They're not crippled in any way, they're not old versions, and in general, they're not light versions of the real apps. You may be thinking that the apps included must be lame. Many of them are fantastic. I recently went through the list of available apps inside SetApp and I had already bought 16 of them. Now that might be frustrating for me because I think of all the money I could have saved if I'd only waited until SetApp existed. But I don't look at it that way. I look at it as an indication that the apps inside SetApp are of high quality if I'm using so many of them, so I should take a serious look at the rest of the apps they offer through my subscription. Just to get you excited, here's the apps I already paid for at one time that are inside SetApp. Bartender, Cloud Mounter, Code Runner, Core Shell, Photo Magico Pro, Home Inventory, one of my favorite apps, Hype, 
iStamp Menu, another favorite app, iThoughts, you know how much I love iThoughts, Jump Desktop, Marked, MarsEdit, the app I use every week for the show notes, MindNode, TechSoap, Touch Retouch, Trip Mode, and Yoink. Now, I don't want to say that everything inside setup is amazing. As Billy Bob Thornton said in Bad Santa, they can't all be winners. Anyway, I've definitely found some duds, but in general, I'm finding really high-quality applications. I made a list of apps whose descriptions intrigued me, and I'm going to start going through them and tell you about the ones I think are nifty. In all cases, you can buy these apps standalone too if you don't want to get a setup subscription, so don't be dissuaded by the fact that I'm enjoying them in setup. I love photography apps, and I have found a really interesting one. Today, I'd like to focus on Camera Bag Pro from NeverCenter.com. It's available inside Setup, or you can buy it for $40 directly from the developer. NeverCenter also has Camera Bag, without the word Pro after it, for $20. Camera Bag is a photo editor, while Camera Bag Pro can do the same types of edits on videos as well as photos. Camera Bag works on both Mac and PC. I am seriously impressed with this software, and I do not understand why it's so inexpensive. Let's take a look at how Camera Bag works and what sets it apart from other image editing programs. Like most photo editors, Camera Bag works on a series of adjustment sliders for light and color. But the way Camera Bag presents the adjustments is unique. You load a photo or a video into the main window either by dragging or using the menu or hitting the O key. Along the right side are two tabs, one for adjustments and one for presets. So far, it sounds like every other photo editing app, other than the fact that the text and tabs are vertical rather than horizontal. But that's pretty much where the similarities end. Let's take a look at presets first because it'll make it a little bit easier to explain the interface. With the presets tab selected and an image on screen, as you slide over different preset names, you'll get a very large thumbnail pop out in the top right that shows you how that preset will work on your photo. It's lightning fast in showing you the previews, so it's very easy to skip past ones that are of no interest until you find the look you desire. If you don't like the hover over preview for the adjustments, you can turn that off in the menus. Many higher priced photo editors have a very few number of presets, but for $20 with camera bag, you get an enormous collection of presets. They're collected in little dropdowns, so you don't have to load a whole new set each time you want to change looks. There are nine in black and white essentials, 14 black and white film, 20 under classic photography, 35 under color correction, and after that I got tired of counting. But we have categories of presets for color essentials, film grain, film stock motion, film stock still, film techniques, film tone, filtered black and white, mask, monocolor, and pop art. This is a huge number of presets. In addition to the presets, there are a plethora of individual adjustments, and that's where I really like to play. They're the usual suspects, you know, things like exposure, contrast, saturation, that sort of stuff. Many of the adjustments are animated. Let's say, for example, you hover over the exposure adjustment. The large preview thumbnail will change over time from high exposure to low exposure and back. These animations are not gimmicks. They really show you whether the adjustment you're hovering over is the one you need. When you select an adjustment in camera bag, it places a small tile at the bottom of the screen. Let's use exposure as a really simple example. When an exposure tile is added, you'll see a heads-up slider on screen that says amount and a little slider with 50 above it. Obviously, you simply slide that slider up and down to affect exposure. The tile that gets added by selecting an adjustment is interesting. It has an X to remove the adjustment entirely, 
and an on-off button to temporarily remove the adjustment and add it back. As you add adjustment tiles, you can reorder them, and that's pretty cool, because you may want to adjust your color before you boost saturation, and with camera bag, you can rearrange adjustment tiles on the fly to do just that. You can also pin adjustment tiles, but for the life of me, I can't figure out what pinning accomplishes. With the tile pinned, you can still slide the, the order of the tile, you can still turn the tile on and off, you can delete the tile with the little X, and you can even change the adjustment values within the tile. I did quite a bit of searching online, and I could not find out what a pin is for. If anybody else figures it out, just let me know. In addition to the controls you'll find in just about any image editor, there are many that I've never seen before. It's not that no other editor has them, it's that they're presented in such an interesting way. For example, one of them is called Coloring Curve. When you add a coloring curve adjustment, you'll get a graph on the left to change the adjusted brightness. You can add points to this curve to see the changes real time. To the right of the graph, you have a color space graphic, and to the right of that is the color method. I played with the coloring curve on a photo I took of the Milky Way from Chile. I changed the color method to tint, and it showed that I had a very orange tint to my image by placing the, uh, the little dot in the color graph in the orange area. I slid that selection dot around on the color space over to the left and adjusted the brightness curve, and I was able to immediately remove the orange color cast while keeping the other colors of the Milky Way. As I said, I never saw an image editor with this style of controls before. Mask adjustment tiles look different from the rest. They have little arrows to the right of them, and an on-screen pop-up tells you to play, place them to the left of an adjustment you want to affect. If you have a set of adjustments that you really like to combine together, you can even save these as your own custom preset. Maybe you like to, you know, do a little boost of saturation and a smidge of sharpness, you know, to all your photos. This can be your very own preset. You can nest tiles together by selecting several and then right-clicking to see menu options. I'm not 100% certain why you'd want to nest adjustments, but I suspect it's possible you've got several that are working together in the exact order you have them, and you want to preserve them as a set that you can move around and turn on and off. There's one thing about camera bag that I think is a bug, but it's possible it's a feature. If you open an image in a folder with other images and then apply some adjustments, you can hold down shift right or shift left arrow and camera bag will show you the next image in the folder and apply that same adjustment. I say that it might be a feature because this might be a way of maybe applying the same image adjustments to multiple images without having to recreate the adjustment tiles and their values. I say it might be a bug because I can close the current image and open a new image in a different folder and the adjustment tiles stay on in the bottom of the screen and are applied to that new image. In order to clear the tiles, you have to delete them or completely quit and reopen camera bag. Like I said, I'm not sure. It might be a bug. It might actually be a feature. When I first started using camera bag, I thought you could only zoom to fit or zoom to 100% because that's all that's shown under the view menu. I had tried to pinch to zoom in and out and it didn't do anything. Then I figured out that a two-finger drag actually zooms in and out smoothly. Now I want to jump back to the presets again to talk about another unique feature of camera bag. At the top of the list of presets, it says Quick Look. When you tap the plus button next to Quick Look, you'll see your image and very large thumbnails of every single preset by category. So no need to flip through them watching the thumbnails go by. You get to see all of the thumbnails. You just scroll through and you can see all of them. They're presented so you can scroll to find the one you want. Camera Bag has five different scopes available to see what the adjustments are doing in color space to your images. 
Under the view menu, you can choose a luminance or RGB histogram, a luminance or RGB waveform, or a chrominance chart. You can use the number keys 1 to 5 to turn these scopes on and then flip through them. I do feel compelled to confess that I don't know how to use these scopes, but they really look nifty, and if you know what they are, you'll probably like them. In Camera Bag, you can open multiple images at the same time in separate tabs, but you can also view the tabs at the same time, either side by side or one above the other. You can apply adjustments to either image simply by tapping on the one you want to change, and you'll see the appropriate tiles at the bottom of the window for that image. What's that, you're asking? Can you do more than two images? Why, yes, you can. I started adding tabs, and I got up to 20, and I didn't run out of uh, options there. It just kept letting me add them. So I don't actually know what the limit is, but if you need more than 20, I think uh, I think you're doing a little too much <laughs> to your images at the same time. Now, here's something I don't understand at all. Camera bag is wicked fast. The image I used for much of my testing was an uncompressed 96 megabyte 16-bit TIFF image, and every adjustment I applied happened virtually instantaneously. I thought at first maybe these adjustments were maybe only creating a preview, and I'd have to hit apply or something like that to make the adjustments on the real photo, but there's no apply button. I then thought maybe when I saved the image, it would take a long time, as it did all that math. But no, saving is super quick too. Speaking of saving, Camera Bag lets you save over the original uh, using Command-S, or you can simply use S, and it chooses Save As and lets you choose the format. So, you got to wonder what can't Camera Bag do. There are two fairly major features not included in Camera Bag that I would like to see. The first is noise removal. I guess I'd rather they not include it if they can't do a good job of it. There's plenty of bad noise removal tools out there. I also couldn't find any selection tools in Camera Bag, so there's no way to apply an adjustment to just part of an image. Without these two features, I think Camera Bag will be a tool in my tool belt of photo apps, but it can't be the only tool I use. Now, I mentioned up front that there's Camera Bag, which does just photos, and up to now, I've described features you get with Camera Bag for $20. But Camera Bag Pro for $40, or again, through your setup subscription, allows you to use the adjustments you've come to know and love for photos, including all of these presets, on your videos. With the video file open, you can hover over the adjustments just like you did with photos and see instantly the kind of modification the adjustments will apply. When you add the adjustment, you see it on a still frame, and then you can drag a slider to see that adjustment applied in different areas of your video. I opened a 26-second 4K video for my iPhone to see if I could stress my Mac with Camera Bag Pro. I applied the Toy Saturated preset, and then I asked it to export at 720p. It took 34 minutes on my 2016 4-core i7 MacBook Pro with, I don't know, 8 gigs of memory. When it finished, I realized I'd fed it a partially slow-mo video, and it actually preserved the slow-mo effect after applying the adjustments. If you want to see your video before committing the time to have it exported, you can view a three-second video preview that takes far less time. In Preferences, you can change how long to make that preview and the resolution for the preview, a great way to decide whether you really want to go through with it. Camera Bag even has batch processing for photos and videos. First, you set up your adjustments and or presets on any image or video. Then select Batch Processing and it asks you to select a folder, Select an export format for photos, so TIFF, JPEG, PNG, and quality settings as appropriate. 
And then it'll ask you for an export format for any videos you might be processing, H.264 or ProRes with some other options, and then finally an export folder. And then it goes to town making all of your adjustments. That's pretty darn cool. The bottom line is that for 20 bucks, Camera Bag is an amazing app that provides an amazing number of tools in a unique interface. I found it the easiest app I own to really make my Milky Way image pop the way I wanted to. I did have to go over to Affinity Photo to apply a noise removal filter, but other than that, I was really pleased with what Camera Bag could do. For only 20 bucks more, you can have Camera Bag Pro and apply these same adjustments to videos as well. And you know what? That's just crazy to me that it can even do that. Now, I don't do a lot of video editing, but even if I only needed it a couple of times, that's still a great price. And of course, I have Camera Bag Pro with my $10 per month subscription to setup, so it didn't cost me anything extra. I kind of wish NeverCenter supplied a manual for Camera Bag because I find it easier to do a search for a specific named feature, you know, like that elusive pin on the adjustments tab. Instead, they have mostly videos online, which are a great way to learn how to do things. I love that they have those, but I kind of wish there was a manual too. Overall, I absolutely love Camera Bag Pro, and I will definitely be using it to enhance my photos and maybe even a video from time to time. I've recorded the NoSilicast from our bedroom for the past 13 years, but after we did a remodel and repainted the house, I decided to move into one of our spare bedrooms. This change has some great advantages. The best thing about having my own room is I can work slash play on my Mac late into the evening, even if Steve has turned in for the night. You know, like when I get really into my programming stuff and I just don't want to stop. It's great. I like having my own space, too, just to have my own space, you know. But this move came with a significant downside. It never occurred to me how quiet my bedroom was since it's on the back of the house away from the street. Sure, there might be a yappy dog from time to time or some construction going on at a neighbor's house, but I didn't have the street noise of cars going by. My new den is on the front of the house and there's lots of traffic noise. For some reason, I also seem to notice the sound of the occasional plane overhead in this front room where I never noticed it in my bedroom. Los Angeles International Airport is north of us by about seven miles, so maybe the south side where my bedroom is located is insulated enough by the house itself. Now, I'm not a serious audiophile, but I do think having clean recordings for you makes the listening experience much more pleasant. The street noise hasn't been a big enough problem for the audio podcast, but there is one place where it is unacceptable. Don McAllister and his editor, J.F. Brissett, are both very serious about having zero noise when I record Screencast Online tutorials. I remember early on, I even had the window open, and Don noticed the birds outside and said, yeah, no, you're not doing that. When a plane goes over, JF can pick out the very, very, very slight hum on my recordings, even with the front window closed. I had to really listen for what he was listening for, but of course, once he pointed it out, it sounded awful to me. It was time to find a solution. I contacted the most awesome Shai Yamini. Shai is a performer and records a lot of his own audio under very complicated situations, so I knew he'd be a great resource. Shai and I talked about building a little booth to put my microphone inside of using foam and such or buying such a device, but I have to be able to see my monitor and all of these solutions would block my vision completely. We then talked about trying to pack acoustic foam panels into the window, but that came with even more challenges. Most of the time, I don't want the window blocked. In fact, most of the year, I keep it open for the lovely ocean breeze. Installing and removing foam panels was not going to work. 
Eventually, we landed on the idea of using sound isolation blankets hung over the inside of the window. The advantage is that they'd be more easily removed, and they're actually made to solve this kind of problem. I tested the viability of this idea by trying to hang a normal blanket on the curtain rod in the bedroom to dampen the sound. I used a high-tech item called a chip clip. I put a link in the show notes to the device I'm referring to as an Amazon affiliate link so you can see what this highly technical device is. While attaching a blanket to a curtain rod using chip clips was difficult to do, and while the blanket was not big enough to cover the window, the reduction in room echo and external noise was dramatic. I knew we were onto something. I spent a lot of time perusing official sound websites looking for the perfectly sized sound insulation blanket and hoping it, it would come with some way to hang it. I finally gave up and I put the idea on my Christmas list, hoping Steve would just figure it out for me. The great news is he found something close to what I wanted and then he modified it. He bought the Sound Dream Sound Insulation Curtain from Amazon for $99. The hard part had been to find something pretty close to the size of the window. The blanket he found was 57 by 95 inches, which was perfect for the window, and it came with nice big grommets along one edge, which we figured we could use to hang the hooks on either side of the window. The only problem was that the grommets were spaced along the short rather than the long edge of the blanket. Not to be deterred, Steve hunted around until he found a local cobbler who would agree to install new grommets along the correct edge for a grand total of $15. The blanket is rather industrial looking and it doesn't hang exactly straight because we added an extra hook and grommet in the middle to make sure it covered as much of the window as possible, but it does now cover that window and it makes a huge difference in the audio for Don's tutorials. I am thrilled with the deadening of the audio now. Steve even put two removable hooks on the back of my den door spaced perfectly so I can hang the blanket out of the way when not in use. It's so clean and tidy and that makes me really, really happy. But now there's one problem. With the window closed and the sound isolation blanket in place, my den gets really, really warm. I live in a very temperate climate, but I get very annoyed at becoming hot. While recording, I always wear my Bose over-the-ear headphones, which makes me even hotter. Because we live in a temperate climate, we don't have whole house air conditioning, but the house can get pretty hot. I'm really annoyed when it's around 80 degrees or higher in here. Last year, I did a review of the $83 Rowenta VU2660 fan. It's a lovely fan, especially because it has a setting called Silent Night, which is really, really quiet. Now remember that audio quality is the most important thing I'm dealing with here, so adding fan noise would completely defeat the purpose of putting up the sound isolation blanket. I found, though, that the only way I can really use the Rowenta fan, even on silent night, is to position it down below the desktop and point it at my legs. If I point it up any higher than that, my very sensitive microphone will pick it up. Sometimes I point it on me while editing and then use the remote to turn it off while recording, then use the remote to turn it on again, rinse and repeat. But the whole time I was doing this, I was lusting over the very best fans, those made by Dyson. Dyson products are really stupid expensive, but I don't know anyone who has bought one of their products and then later on said, well, that wasn't worth it. Who can forget my story about the Dyson V7 Motorhead cordless vacuum cleaner? Sure, it was 300 bucks, but I like vacuuming now. I am still in love with the, the Dyson V7 Motorhead. I know someone who bought themselves the Dyson hairdryer for $400. I hope she got it on sale. Now, I think that's coconuts, but guess what? She loves this hairdryer. So, I've been lusting over the Dyson fans, but they normally run around 300 bucks. 
My $82 Rowena was doing a good job, and I didn't really need a new fan. But the Dysons are so cool looking. I've been lusting over them for years. Then, on Prime Day, Amazon had the Dyson Air Multiplier AM06 table fan on sale. It was the deal of the day. They said it was normally $299, as I'd remembered, but that one day only, the deal of the day, would take $109 off, bringing it down to $190. Now, we're all sophisticated Amazon shoppers here on the No Silicast, and we know you have to check the facts to see if it's really a good deal. I looked up the AM06, I'm sorry, AM06 table fan on the Dyson website, and I discovered it was a discontinued model. That didn't bother me. Didn't make me doubt whether I was really getting such a good deal. I kept researching, and I found the AM06 table fan at Best Buy for $299. So I knew Amazon was giving me a real deal. I still want to tell you about the fan, because I haven't even told you about the fan yet, but I'd like to add some more context to the pricing before I do. I just checked this week the Dyson AM06 table fan on Amazon, and it's actually only $235.20 on Amazon right now, not on deal of the day. So technically, I think I only saved $45, not really $109, but that means it's more affordable for you if you're interested. And in the end, it really was only $190. All right, let's talk about the fan. I'm going to finally give you a spoiler and say that this is an awesome fan. Perhaps the most amazing things about Dyson fans is that they have no visible fan blades. I'm sure there's something spinning around in there making the air move, but all you see is a one-foot diameter hollow circle on top of a six-inch diameter stand. Using a little treat, I convinced my cat Ada to put her paw through the fan while it was running just to show you guys exactly how safe this fan actually is. Speaking of cool, let's talk about how well the AM06 provides cooling. I put the fan on my desk with the circle facing me. The fan stands 19 inches tall at the top, so the center of the circle is exactly at my face height. On the front of the fan is a power button, and when pressed, you'll see a hidden LED showing you the fan speed from 1 to 10. The AM06 comes with a very small remote control that allows you to turn the fan on and off and control the fan speed. I learned from reading the manual, yes, I read the manual, it's very short, that the remote is magnetic, so you can stick it to the top of the fan so you always know where the remote is. That's important since I don't think you can control the fan speed without the remote. There's also a button on the remote to allow the fan to oscillate back and forth. Personally, I find oscillation on a fan really annoying. I want the fan on me all the time. But if you go for this kind of thing, the AM06 does have oscillation. I mentioned that I have the fan facing right at me, but I discovered again by reading the very short manual that you can tilt the entire fan up and down. It's not obvious that you'd be able to do that, but it works really well. If you like to have a fan on to help you get to sleep, but you don't need it running all night long, you can use the remote to set a time from 15 minutes to 9 hours before it turns off. With the fan so close to me on the desk, I can turn it to level 1 and I have the slightest, most delightful breeze blowing on my face. I use Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba to sweeten the sound and record my voice, and it also has meters that show me my audio levels. When I'm actually recording, I like to keep my voice between minus 6 and minus 9 decibels, or dB, from full scale. This makes for a nice, strong voice with my audio well above any noise, and yet it's not peaking, which creates a harsh grating sound, so you don't want to be peaking. I closed my windows, and I fired up my Dyson fan to level 1, and the peak RMS meters in Audio Hijack showed a background noise level of just minus 50 dB. 
I'm sorry, David, but we're going to have to very quickly review decibels and how they're on a logarithmic scale. We're going to talk about perceived loudness here, not power for you electrical engineers in the crowd. A 10 dB decrease in audio levels corresponds to a halving of perceived loudness. So it cuts it in half every 10 dB. Now remember, I said my audio is between minus 6 to minus 9 dB. Let's call it minus 10 dB just to make the math easier. If the noise of my fan was at minus 20 dB, then it would be half as loud as my voice, perceived loudness, at minus 10 dB. But the noise of the fan was at minus 50 dB, which means the Dyson fan is actually 1 16th as loud as my voice. That is super wee tiny quiet. By the way, this fan has been running on level one, pointed directly at my face, and I'm right sitting at my microphone the entire time you've been listening to this. So if you haven't heard the fan now, it's probably doing pretty well. I'm going to sit quietly for just a second and see if you can hear it. See? Nothing. Isn't that awesome? Well, the bottom line is the audio isolating blanket Steve had made for me has allowed me to make a huge step up in audio recording for Screencast Online. I wish I could promise I'd use it for my shows, but until and unless someone complains, I probably won't. I am super happy with my new Dyson AM06 fan with error multiplier, whatever that is. I'm really pleased that I got a good deal on it and even more pleased that it will keep me cool during the hot summer months while allowing me to maintain high audio quality during recording of the NoSilicast, Chit Chat Across the Pond, and Screencasts Online. Plus, Steve is happy because I gave him the almost as awesome Rowenta fan with silent night mode. Jill McKinley is our newest patron of the Podfeet podcast. Jill wrote me a lovely note about the value she gets from the show and all that she learns. She made a specific budget line item for supporting the show at a dollar amount that is right for her and for her family. She went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and signed up to be a monthly supporter, and I am thrilled to know how much the show means to her. You could do it too if you want to. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing an out-of-band early midweek uh, school night episode for us, Bart. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, it, it worked out that way. I had, well, actually, no, because you gave me enough notice, it's always fine, because it just meant that instead of doing all the show notes in a sprint, I did the show notes as a marathon. <laughs> you started early and kept going at it all the way to the end, right? Yeah, trick, what was it trickle charging your battery? I was trickle charging show notes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so what uh, what do we got? We don't have any uh, medium, nothing big and chewy to work on, just lots of little bits. Yeah, no mediums. Um, we have some follow up though, because we had we had mediums last week, so we have some follow up. Uh, first off, more on the Zoom story. Um, so we now have confirmation. Last time we had said that it was assumed the vulnerability was also present in a second piece of software called Ring Central. Uh, well, we now have confirmation that, yes, that was true, but also there's a third affected app called Zhumu, uh, <laughs> Z-H-U-M-U. Zhumu? Okay. Yeah, have, a, have at it how you will, but either way, so both of those are affected too. Again, though, no need to panic uh, because Apple updated their update to also remove the web servers from those two. So oh, again, assuming nice. you haven't disabled that feature in macOS where it automatically sends you critical security updates on a daily basis, you have you're covered. You're fine. 
So you did just clarify something for me. Even if you have the Zoom app and you want to keep using the Zoom app, Apple removed the web server, correct? Correct, yes. So the app continues to work, but now it works the way it was intended, as in you have to hit OK when it would like to turn on your webcam. That's just terribly inconvenient. I can't believe they're going to make you do that. Yeah, And also, if you uninstall the app, you have to reinstall it. It won't magically reinstall itself. (laughs) Nice. Very good. Yes. Um, I also have some related opinion I I thought was worthy of mentioning on the show. Um, John Gruber has been doing a lot of pondering about various bits of tech misbehaving, and he's come up with a concept I think is very useful. Non-consensual technology. Oh, and this okay. I think, yeah. So his idea is basically tech that ab- t- abuses privileges it asks for, like say an installer that does more than you expect. That's basically it doing something that you didn't consent to. You may have clicked OK to run an installer, but that's not consensual because it didn't say I am going to install the ability to reinstall myself behind your bank, even if you expressly uninstall this app. And so it's an interesting term to use whenever technology is particular is sort of not broken, but actually maliciously designed, non-consensual technology can cover a lot of that. So it's an interesting idea. He goes into it in a blog post, and he also outlines why Apple sending security updates daily is not non-consensual, because that is obviously what some of the inverse Apple fanboys, whatever you want to call someone who's fanatically (laughs) anti-Apple, I've been going quite bonkers about. So this is no different to Zoom. Apple silently. It's an anti-malware feature that you have a button to control. And that was actually, you know, it's kind of a big part of macOS's defenses that Apple tout on all their security pages and stuff. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you can see how you can tilt your head sideways and kind of squint and maybe see their point. But that's different. <laughs> It really is because Apple are offering you a secured OS. They're not. It's quite different to saying, "Hi, install this app." Oh, yeah, we're not going to tell you we're installing a reinstaller that will that will override your explicit decision to uninstall. Because the only way an app gets removed is if you choose to remove it. So having it reinstall itself is very literally overriding an explicit instruction from you. I mean, it is really quite different. You know, the the one thing I haven't heard a lot of people talk about is, you know, okay, so they they. When they designed this little web server, it had it had uh, some vulnerabilities. Everything's got vulnerabilities. There's always problems, so that's not that big of a deal. But if I told you, Bart, we're we're at work, we're we're compatriots, and I said, "Oh, my solution to this was I installed a a web server on the user's machine." If those are the only words I said, would you think that that was okay under any circumstance? No, I would not. And what's worse is. Even if we assume they wrote perfect code, someone also wrote on a whiteboard somewhere, oh yeah, and we can use this to reinstall the app after the user uninstalls it. And someone <laughs> in that room went, great, do that. Right, right, right. There, there's just, I, that. it's just that piece alone. You you should know better. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yep. I, I couldn't keep my mouth shut in a meeting like that. I, yeah. I probably wouldn't work for this company for very long, but I could I could not physically keep my lips from moving. Well, that's <laughs> why you get paid to do that, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Fair point, yes. 
So, all right. Uh, a little bit more color on the Facebook story. We talked last uh, time about Facebook record setting 5 billion settlement with the FTC, and you tried to find some way of saying that, no, no, it really did punish Facebook, and I wanted you to succeed, and you didn't succeed. Yeah, so I figure there's a reasonable percentage of people who never make it to the end of a podcast, since <laughs> none of us ever do. At the end of the show where I was challenging that and I, what Bart had said, and I said, no, they got punished when they were when they set the money aside. And Bart said, oh, well, I don't know about that. And I was like, yeah, they did. And I spent the rest of the show while he was uh, talking, trying to find proof that it ever they ever got punished, and they did not. So Which Bart was depressing. 100% right, and I was wrong, but Bart wanted me to be right. Yeah, because I want I want them to be punished, but no, unfortunately, they really did just get away with the slap on the wrist. Um, well, no, uh, I read something today. Everybody's acting like this was just announced today, but uh, or yesterday. It was, it was formalized, wasn't it? It, it was given yeah. the official FTC dotted line sign off today, wasn't it? I guess so, something along those lines. But but this, what I read, or it might have been Tom Merritt talking, said it was twelve times bigger than the next biggest fine for privacy of any fine given on the on earth the question is in terms of market valuation of the company how does it set any yeah. records and when you do the market capitalization number you get that this is a one percent fine uh yeah it was one quarter's worth of revenue or profit or something wasn't it it was a quarter's worth of profit or 1% of um, market capitalization. Basically, take oh, all the okay. shares, multiply by the number of shares. No, take the number of shares, multiply by the price of the shares, and you get the market cap. Right. And so for, for, for any other company, 1% of the total market cap would be a much, 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 much smaller number than $5 billion because Facebook <laughs> is valued at a staggering amount of money. And the percentage that it was of the market cap dropped afterwards, right? Because well, the market cap went up. Yes, yes, actually, yes. Oh dear. Yeah. Anyway, um, I have three links in the show notes I just want to point people at. Um, the first is a really nice summary of everything that's been going on. Oh yes, I should say, first off, an actual development development. Um, mm. Now that the FTC has formalized the agreement with Facebook, uh, they have also initiated proceedings against Cambridge Analytica for deceptive practices. So they're well, suing them. Oh, there was another part uh, that Tom talked about on uh, Daily Tech News Show about the Facebook thing is is uh, also that um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is not allowed to be in charge of uh, their of privacy decisions. Yes, exactly. So this is this is the extra bit of color that came out of the the decision being formalized. So last time it hadn't been formalized yet. It was reported by the I think it was the Washington Post had the scoop. That you know that they were going to settle. Well, now that we have the full details, they're under a consent decree again. Uh, they broke the last one into pieces, hence this fine. Um, but they, I think it's twice a year they get audited. They have to set up a special board which has extra powers over privacy, and Mark Zuckerberg is not allowed to be on that board. And they have to formalize a bunch of rules, and they have to do all the paperwork to prove compliance. And it's not nothing. Um, and I guess if this consent decree is actually enforced, that will be a positive outcome from this. Yeah. Let's hope so. It, we shall see. Um, what is... Anyway, so there's a nice... Uh, Naked Security from Sophos have a nice uh, summary of where we stand, which covers the Cambridge Analytica development as well as the stuff you were talking about there. 
Um, and then I have two opinion pieces that, oh, sorry, I have one and you have one um, that I mm-hmm. thought were interesting. Uh, Bloomberg, well, okay, Bloomberg reported in a non-behind-the-paywall way on reporting, I think it was from the Wall Street Journal that wasn't a behind-the-paywall way. Uh, basically, it has come out that in the back room, Facebook basically managed to negotiate its own rules for this. They basically got to have their way on this. This this is kind of the punishment that they asked for, which is probably why they were so well able to budget for it and so well able to announce it up front. <laughs> I think we could afford uh, $5 billion. Yeah, it, it's a little bit disturbing that it went out that way. So it's, again, it's an interesting read from Bloomberg. And then you sent a link to me earlier to a really... Good post. Why don't, why don't you describe it? Yeah, so this was on uh, Medium, on 10.medium.com. A gentleman named Albert Kahn did kind of a historical walkthrough um, how the Sherman Act back in 1890 was enacted, and it was about antitrust, and about how things were, the antitrust violations were misdemeanors and all these different things that people did. And it talks about how no matter how much they raised the financial penalties, it didn't decline. They were talking about price mm. fixing and things like that. It was like 50000 and then, it, it, I don't know, criminal antitrust fees went up to $4 billion by the 2000s. Well, it wasn't until they changed it to make there be actual prison time that it started dropping. So in 2018, the number of price fixing and other criminal antitrust violations declined to less than a quarter of the peak 2011 level. So it wasn't until they were imprisoned that people stopped doing this kind of behavior or that kind of behavior. That was antitrust, which is not as the same as privacy. But uh, but um, Albert Kahn is making the point that maybe we do need it to be a criminal penalty. Well, it's a great it's a great analogy, right? Because um, he, I believe he's a lawyer of some sort because he talked about representing clients and hearing the horrific phrase, oh, it's just the cost of doing business. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, went to Harvard Law, and he, yeah, he said that. He said, "I felt like I was looking through the look, looking through the looking glass." After uh, a client took a multi billion dollar fine for price fixing, they just went, "Yeah, price of doing business." He's like, "Oh," my and, God. and and that is that. Uh, yeah, you can do the math on it and decide whether or not the law is is will I make more profit than I will lose in fines? Have Facebook made more than five billion in profit? Yes. Yes, 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 because it's a yeah. quarter's worth of profit, and this is years' worth of abuse. So, yes, it was profitable. Yeah. So, whereas if you say that the named executive, because being uh, as a chief financial officer is one of those posts where you, you are personally responsible for a bunch of stuff, and also chief executive officer, isn't it? And maybe chairman mm-hmm. of the board. There's a few positions in a company that have C-level. legal responsibility. Yeah, the C-level positions, I think, do. But not all of them, right? Uh, In terms of law, there are certain special ones that have responsibilities. The CFO in particular has a... Particularly on a publicly traded company, the CFO is seriously personally liable for stuff. And that personal liability for those specifically named officers and specific laws mean that those specific human beings go to prison when they specifically, you know, do certain kinds of fraud and things. And yeah... Make it so that violating privacy like this is one of those specifically named things, and it probably would go down quite a lot because the spreadsheet looks very different when it's how many how many months of jail time is Mark Zuckerberg prepared to accept in exchange for these extra high profits? I think that number may be close to, if not actually, zero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm going to make a little plug for uh, Chit Chat Across the Pond this week. It was with um, uh, Laura Kane from UBS uh, where she studied... Uh, the effect on businesses uh, of having women in high-level positions. And one of the things they found was having three or more women on the board 
those companies that had three or more women on the board had a dramatically lower incidence of bribery and corruption. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually listened to that as I was eating my dinner. I literally, you know, I just finished listening about 10 minutes ago. And it was a fascinating discussion. I also like the fact that the men were less likely to miss board meetings if there were a mixed gender board. Yeah, yeah, there were a bunch of, it, it, they They weren't able to draw direct court, uh Direct conclusions necessarily, but the correlations were fascinating. Well, I can give you a an anecdote, which again, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data, but I th- it gets at what I think is going on here is that all it takes for it not to be a boys club is there for it to be some diversity in the group. And I have been lucky that even though I work in IT for most of my career, there's been a nice mix of gender in my workplace. And mm-hmm. There was one exception to that one due to a complete random coincidence of, you know, the way events conspire. We suddenly ended up as an all-male team for six months. Okay. It took time, but ever more toxic masculine silliness snuck in, sneaked into our team, and it was completely nipped in the bud as soon as the gender diversity was back. Oh, wow. Interesting. And it starts off with little things like passing comments about, oh, yeah, you know, I do her. And uh-huh. just, all of it just goes away. It's just as soon it as you put in. Disappears. And the, the attitude of, yeah, yeah it, it it really changes attitudes. If it's a boys club, it's a bit like being in secondary school. It, it, I'm going to assume that the opposite is true. But having been an engineer all my life, I have never experienced an all girls club. <laughs> I'm, I'm presuming the same would probably be true, though. I have, yeah, I, I'm not going to mention names or anything, but I am aware of a team where the opposite indeed was true, and mm. the the opposite effect had the same positive outcome. Okay, cool, good to know. So it does seem right. to well, be a case that what you need is mix. That'll be a teaser for people to listen to the chit chat yeah. from this week. Yeah. yeah, fascinating show actually, and it was all based on research. Like it's the kind of topic that could really be all anecdote, anecdote, anecdote. But no, 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 no. Your guest was like a researcher who had really done her homework, like. Yeah, really done her homework. Yeah, I, re- I really did like that. And and I know that's just a maybe this is a personal topic that's just of interest to me. But hey, it's my show. I can have people on to talk about what I find interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, well, yeah, I find it fascinating. So anyway, yeah, no, I, I, I will. I will second your recommendation of that chit chat across the pond, even if right. I wasn't on it. It was still good. <laughs> <laughs> it so, can happen. It's rare, but you know. Every second week. Anyway, um, notable security updates. Apple patched pretty much everything under the sun. Mac OS 10.14.6. Security update 2019.004 for High Sierra and Sierra. iOS 12.4. Watch OS 5.3. TV OS 12.4. iTunes 12.9.6 for Windows. Safari 12.1.2. And iCloud for Windows 10.6 and 7.13. Which I think means they have separate version numbers for Windows 10 and Windows 7, I think is how you read those. Wow. Is this what uh, Mac OS Ken calls update a go-go? Yeah, I would definitely update a go-go and play the music at this point, yeah. Wow. Um, I forgot we- that the Macs had, had it. I did not do the Mac update yet. It will nag you shortly. Okay. Um, note that the walkie-talkie bug that we talked about last time, where they had disabled the walkie-talkie feature preemptively because they'd been responsibly notified of a problem, that bug is patched and the feature has been re-enabled. So that's back up and running. That's good for the Sheridan household. We actually use it all the time. When Steve has dinner ready for me, he lets me know over walkie-talkie. 
I actually might soon start using it because I am, it is my intention to acquire a new Apple Watch mm. in September-ish, I hope. And it, my current Series 2 is still a very good watch, so it is going to be handed down to my darling beloved. So we, I may finally have another person to talk to. <laughs> well, you know, technically you could walkie-talkie me. Where the hell are you, Alison? You're late to the show, right? <laughs> yeah, I just... Spots on my home screen are precious. They don't get yeah. used unless there's good reason to, but that, that just might do it. Finally, oh, just might new, do it. Your new watch will have a bigger screen. That is a really good point. I'm quite looking forward to that. And I, I mean, I love the the, comp, uh, the 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 what is it? The utility one. The one where you get lots and lots and lots of comp- complications. And you get a, you get one more complication on the new one on the bigger watches. There you watches go. That There's came, a place for walkie talkie. So. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it's it's good that it's back. I think they handled that well. Yes, they did. That's called responsible, you know, responsible disclosure by the security researchers and a good response by Apple. That's what we want to see. Yeah. Now something weird happened. So iOS 9 and iOS 10 have not received security updates in years, or one year and two years to be, you know, approximately precise. So there are lots of known security vulnerabilities in those two OSs. And that is still true today. And yet Apple released a GPS bug fix update for iOS 9.3.6 and iOS 10.3.4. Wow. Huh. That's crazy. It is absolutely crazy because I I sort of assumed that, well, if you're going to release an update, roll them, you know, roll all those security patches in too. But apparently that hasn't happened. So it really is just to deal with the fact that there's something, there's some sort of Y2K-ish problem with the datum in the GPS network that some some counter somewhere is going to roll over and GPS is going to break on anyone who has like an old Garmin or something that's been hanging around for ages. That's going to go kerput. Unless it gets a new firmware update, which it won't if it's an ancient old Garmin. So Apple have pushed that GPS update to hmm. those older versions of iOS. Well, interesting. It is interesting. Uh, a critical zero-day bug has been found in the Windows and Linux versions of the very popular media player VLC. Last news I have on the story, they were working frantically on a fix and hoped to have it quote-unquote soon but it was not yet out. So if you're a VLC user, expect an update. And when you get it, install it. However, this audience is ever so slight Macintosh bias to the rescue. It does not affect the Mac version, as far as we can tell. Okay, not not because Apple's better, nothing like that, just because it just didn't affect it this time. Right, there is some code... snootiness. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be some code in common, but, you know, the the core, how do I turn these ones and zeros into moving pixels is going to be in common across all the different versions of VLC. But other Mm -hmm. bits of code won't be in common, will be Mac specific or whatever. So whatever this code is, what this bug is, it's shared by the Linux and the uh, Windows versions, but not by the Mac version. That's kind of an odd comparison. You would think it might be uh, uh, Mac OS and Linux. That's interesting. Uh, That's like a real thing to see happen. Yeah, I can't even make an educated guess as to which library would be in common, but Apple often does weird things, so that may be why, uh, you know, not because it's more secure, just because it's more different. Just weird. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In terms of notable news, I am sorry that today I had to stick in as a lead story. U.S. Attorney General William Barr renewed the attack on encryption in a speech delivered to a cybersecurity conference, insisting tech firms, quote, can and must 
put back doors in encryption. This is like the zombie of bad ideas. Just won't go Strain- away. It will not. Just every time you think you've killed it, it rears its ugly head again. And what was interesting is that apparently some State Department officials spoke out against the idea. So we oh. have the U.S. government telling the U.S. government that the U.S. government had a terrible idea. Oh, well, that's good. You know, I, I guess I, I keep coming back to something my brother said a very long time ago that he believes that that almost every problem in society could be solved by better education. So if William Barr hmm. were forced to go to, I don't know, some math classes. Right. It's not even <laughs> computer science. The math is there. Yeah. You cannot legislate the math away. The criminals right. will do encryption. The only right. people affected they, by this are regular folks. Right, right. Who are supposed to be protected by the Constitution, etc. Stupid. Anyway, let's, let's not retread that one yet again. It, it made me cranky to see those headlines come across the wire again. Not again, not go. again, not again. Next up, I get to use my fire extinguisher icon, which is always Oh, fun. good. So, I, and, and that means don't light your hair on fire, right? It means if your hair is on fire because you read all the headlines and you set your hair on fire, assuming the world was ending, you may cease. (laughs) You may put it out. (laughs) So it made all the news that a weakness had been found in Bluetooth. And that is a factual statement. Missing all context to give you the ability to react. It is also factually true that your iOS devices are all affected by this. But it's not nearly as big of a weakness as you might expect. So you're probably thinking, oh, my God, Bluetooth weakness. Someone can, you know, illegitimately pair or they can spy on the, the data or they can, and you know, cause malware to run or they can. No, none of those things are true. The only thing affected here is that Bluetooth followed the lead from Wi-Fi to try out a bit more privacy by randomizing the MAC address so that okay. you so that you wouldn't look the same, right? So you can imagine the That's scenario. That's a good thing, right? Oh, it's absolutely a good thing, right? It's, okay, all right. For a while before we just started to do with Wi-Fi on smartphones, you could track people in physical space by just keeping a log of which MAC addresses you see throughout a city or whatever. Right. And then you could literally trace people's that. movements because their MAC address stayed the same. And so as they were walking around, they were tracking themselves. And the Wi-Fi radio in it was broadcasting the MAC address? Well, if your phone is on and Wi-Fi is enabled, it regularly sort of scans around going, hello, who's out there? What access points exist? Any of you, you know, Allison's Wi-Fi or whatever? Because it it doesn't know when you're home. It's always forever trying, trying, oh, so desperately trying to get onto your (laughs) Wi-Fi. Please. And failing most of the time. But one of the packets that it's throwing out there has your MAC address in it? Well, every packet, it's Ethernet over wireless. So yes, the MAC address is... So this is happening at the lowest network level, if you remember our TCP IP stack. And so your MAC address Uh is at the the lowest level of the stack. And it's at that low level. And so the the solution was simply to randomize the MAC address every blah amount of minutes. Right. Um, And so that works fine for Wi-Fi. And the same logic was applied to Bluetooth. Um, Unfortunately, with Bluetooth, you have the MAC address and you also have some software keys that need to be randomized. And the specification does not say you must change these keys at the same time as each other. And so it turns out that there's a bit of a delay between the two keys shifting. 
And if you're clever about it, you can basically survive the quote unquote randomization by keeping track of one while the other one's changing. And then it sort of lets you cling on to it. So you, as the person trying to track people, can continue your luck on them, which you should okay. be able so to do. It, it was making it as bad as it used to be before they started randomizing it. Yes. Or not quite as bad, but yes. possible to be as bad. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So that's the worst case scenario. And then there's even more good news. Every chipset is different. This isn't a problem in the spec. This, Well, it is in the sense that the spec didn't say what you must do. Mm-hmm. Therefore, everyone's implemented their firmware a little bit differently. And so the attack is fragile and different for every different chipset. So this is not a practical attack. So it's not particularly harmful, and it's actually quite difficult to do. So the real outcome here is that the actual thing of note here is that the security researchers were able to produce a short, concise list of technical improvements that should be made to the chipsets. And so OS vendors should improve their firmware, and hardware makers, I guess, should improve their reference firmware, most probably. And we'll all be grand. So actually, this is actually a good news story. Researchers have found some simple advice to make Bluetooth better and have given it to the people with the power to do so. (laughs) That's not quite as good of a headline, Bart. I know it's not clickbaity, but there we go. So anyway, fire extinguisher a go-go. It's almost almost like our purpose in Security Bits is not to be clickbaity, right? Yeah, I like that is my intention to be the anecdote, the, not the anecdote, the antidote. <laughs> <laughs> anecdote to clickbait. Yes, I want to be the, the anecdote. Yes. Anyway, I want to be, I want to basically, the, the world is full of clickbait. What do we do that's different? We don't try to scare the pants off you to get clicks. There you go. We try to put your pants back on. <laughs> Okay, you, you should let this one go now, Bart. I will let this one go. Um, <laughs> this one may, the next one may also deserve a fire extinguisher icon. Basically, the whole of social media was completely a buzz or a Twitter with this whole face-up thing to the point where we had senators suggesting that there should be FBI investigations and yada, Making yada, their yada. own little videos, I saw. Yeah. Senator Schumer made a, uh, made a little video showing how hip he was that he was on the internet. I do not understand what the hubbub is about. This is an this is a free P app using the same business model as Facebook and Google and Twitter. All of the platforms that people use to complain about this app use exactly the same business model as this app. This right. app in no way whatsoever stole your photos. The app used the standard OS APIs to ask you to give it access to your photos, which it then used to monetize itself. That is how free services work. And they said in their privacy policy that they were going to do that, correct? Yeah. And any app that is not by a charitable foundation that costs you no money is somehow monetizing you. That's the bloody point. They're Literally, they're not a charity. Right, it is one right. of the business models I describe in my Freepy post. Like, follow the money. I, I do not understand why this app, like, what did these guys do? They're from That's Russia, different. Bart. They're oh, Russian. Actually, no, you're right. That that probably actually See? is it. It's fine so, when American companies do this. 
Yeah, that's actually, yes. Uh, I, it, it hadn't it, even it, occurred to me, but yes, I think it may just be a bit of nationalism creeping in. Uh, it, but there are other things the Russians are doing that people aren't as upset about, so, which adds to the irony. Oh, but we won't go into that. Oh, so many shades of, <laughs> given the week that's been in it. Yeah. I'd like right. my time back, but anyway. <laughs> Someone put all of the testimony into Rachel Maddow's podcast feed, and I decided I had to hear it all. I'm an idiot. Just, just No, no, I watched all six hours. I thought it was fa- fascinating. I, I listened got, to it got, all and it just made me cranky. <laughs> we shouldn't anyway. talk about it here, but we should talk about that offline. Yes. So there's a bunch of stories in the show notes. It's it's an app that does exactly what I expected it to do. It does some silly thing and then you monetizes your data. Mm-hmm. Okay. Apparently it's quite good at making you look old. Yeah, I would like to talk to more people about it. It had already hit the fan and gotten all this big blah, blah, blah about it before I could ask the question. But uh, I believe it doesn't make you look old. I believe it makes you look like an old man. Men age differently than women. And I looked at me and it's like, nope, that's what I would look like if I was a very old man. It's not the feature changes and stuff. You know, men's oh. noses get bigger, their ears get bigger, but women's don't as much. I got a giant nose. Now, I got a big schnoz to start with. Don't get me wrong, but that is not what I would look like as an old as an old man. I'm sure of it. Well, so yet another I mean, an example of females being left out of things like, say, drug trials and stuff. Although in this case, it's completely meaningless. But again, the algorithm right. only takes into account dudes. I'd like to see if anybody else has that observation. I've sat there alone in in my office looking at the picture, making the observation all by myself. So it's even worse than anecdote. <laughs> it's like one okay. data point. <laughs> but when you describe, you know, making noses, I, I think you're onto something. It's You have a plausible hypothesis. Yeah, I need to maybe g- gather some data. Perhaps, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, from the Department of Stating the Blindingly Obvious... <laughs> Security researchers have found that many quote-unquote free VPNs have very suspicious ownerships, often tied to the Chinese government and have poor or non-existent privacy policies. Because if you follow the money, yada, 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 insert same comments here. That's appalling. Who knew? (laughs) Exactly. I believe you've said it specifically about VPNs about two or three hundred times, right? Yes, because they're a particularly tasty target, because all of your traffic is routed through a VPN. That's why you install it. Right, right. (sighs) Perhaps also from the department of repeating myself, we now have, although this isn't quite repeating myself, but anyway, we have said for a long time that you should be careful about what apps you install on your mobile devices. That has Mm -hmm. always been true and probably always will be true. And now there's yet another reason why it's true. Because security researchers have proven that using only the accelerometer on an Android phone, there's enough granularity in the data and sensitivity in the data that it can be used effectively like a microphone. That the vibrations of the sound waves. Yeah. There's a couple of caveats. Obviously, if you're wearing headphones, it doesn't work. (laughs) <laughs> so let me let me make sure I cut you off. I said really right as you were about to say the vibration of the sound waves does is picked up by the accelerometer. Oh wow! That's Isn't cool. it genius? Yes, it's, yes, it's really cool. <laughs> now there's a few caveats, right? So for this to work, you need to be using the internal speaker because mm-hmm. that makes enough vibration to be picked up. 
Okay. So if you're using a Bluetooth speaker, that's not going to, it's not going to be able to pick it up. And if you're using headphones or a headset of some sort, obviously not going to be able to pick it up. But if you're using the built-in speaker, which all the kids do these days, then there's vibration is sufficient and the APIs provide enough time sensitivity to the motion data from the accelerometer to reconstruct the waveform. Hmm. Now, that's particularly interesting because you need, you get a special Auga Auga pop-up when an app wants your microphone. Because no one ever thought that accelerometer data could be dangerous and because having everything pop you up all the time would drive people batty to the point that no one reads anything anymore. Very sensibly, neither iOS nor Android ask you, uh, make you grant permission to the accelerometer. So this way, an app can listen to you without having microphone access. That's crazy. And so people have actually been uh, been doing it in the wild? I don't know if they've been doing it in the... I don't remember off the top of my head um, whether or not there were any actually found in the Play Store, but I, th- I have a vague impression there were, because why else did someone make the point that... Anyway, whether or not there were doesn't really matter, I guess. It, you could get into the Play Store and you don't have to do any hackery, basically. You wouldn't show up in an automated scan as doing something right, suspicious. Right. Because sure. you're allowed accelerator accelerometer access. Sure. So, you know, it, it's 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 really interesting. nifty though. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. And we've a couple more of these later in the show notes in, in the propeller beanie section. I've made a new icon just for this kind of story, actually. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really cool. Finally, in our main news section, we have a timely reminder of why we call beta OSs beta. They mm-hmm. have bugs. I won't say it's by design, it's it's inevitable. And the reason you have a beta is to shake the bugs out before you launch, or as many of the bugs as you can before you launch for real. So it's not that you design in bugs to a beta, but it is pretty much expected behavior that betas are buggy. So there was, of course, a whole bunch of Sturm und Drang over the fact that iOS 13 has a password leaking bug. It's like, yeah, it's beta. They do that. In this anyway, case, I had to look up Sturm and Drang uh, because Rachel Maddow keeps saying it. So now I know what it means. Oh, it's really common in Europe. I wonder if Rachel visited Europe. I wonder. It's a German phrase like Schadenfreude. Yeah, I forget what it, call, it stands for. Basically, bluster and fury. Yeah, let's see. Storm and stress. All of Twitter. Yeah, exactly. All of Flutter. All. Yeah, exactly. Okay. In this case, Storm in a teacup. But yeah. Um, so if you were authenticated to the iOS device, if you had already unlocked the iOS device and you then opened the system preferences app, there was a way to have it not ask you for the password a second time like it's supposed to. Okay. It's not good, but it's found during the beta and therefore will be fixed before this goes out for real, which is kind of the point of betas. And right. even to the beta users, this would only mean this would only affect you if you're in the habit of unlocking your phone, handing it to people, and then leaving the room. Why do you have do to that. be out of the room? Well, otherwise you'd see them doing it, and then you'd oh, stop okay. them. I see. <laughs> I presume. So yeah, I mean it's, it's utter utter storm in a teacup. But anyone who's like, oh no, I run all the betas on my production systems, it's fine. It's like. A, you're in danger of losing your work. B, you're in danger of losing the ability to do any more work as your device, you know, crashes or something. Uh, And C, it's not secure because we know it's full of bugs. It's supposed to be for testing, not for live use. You know what, though, Bart? Let those people do it. 
because we get the advantage of it, right? Right, but not for your real data is what I'm saying. <laughs> You're too well, much okay, cyber Darwinism, I guess. Let them knock themselves <laughs> out of the cyber gene pool, but, you know. Anyway, I'd prefer only people who know how to file a radar run the betas, because otherwise yeah. they're, they're just putting themselves at risk and Apple will never know. Yeah, if you're not going to file radars, don't bother. Suggested reading. Lots of stuff here to mention. Um, the Equifax saga is somewhat winding down. Um, I don't believe it's been finally, finally signed off on, but details have emerged of the proposed settlement that Equifax will use to end their case. Um, so Brian Equifax, Krebs has, that was the giant data breach, right? Yes, and Equifax are credit monitoring bureau so they basically watch everyone's financial everything and they got uber hacked which is so is it going to be five billion dollars uh not five billion no 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 no. although maybe as a percentage of net worth it may actually be a bigger fine on them maybe um it's not straightforward though because there's no automatic payment people have to fill in some paperwork to get paid and so the expectation is that the company will probably get off quite lightly because most people are lazy and or don't realize that they could make a claim hmm or it's not worth it or it's not worth it yeah there's all sorts of answers and they're offering 10 years of credit monitoring to victims and 10 years is worth it that's worth a bit of paperwork yeah Anyway, Brian Krebs has done a superb Q&A, sort of FAQ-style post about it. So I love those because whatever you care about, you just scroll to the appropriate question and you have your answer. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, remind me, Bart, how much did the United States government uh, pay for losing all of my uh, security clearance paperwork and and that of hundreds of thousands of other American citizens that worked for the government? Well, they didn't oh, wait, pay themselves anything. Oh, sorry. My bad. Yeah, they would have been paying themselves. <laughs> I will be bitter about this one for the end of time. So anybody who's saying, oh, Allison, give it a rest. No. <laughs> what gets No, what gets me about that is that security clearances, security, secure, it's in the bloody name. How it's can you fail to secure your security clearances? Yeah. yeah. That's like the inverse. The whole point of security clearances is to protect your national secrets. Leaking them to the Chinese is the opposite of protecting your national security. Stupid. <sighs> apart from all the privacy breaches, it's just really bad government. <laughs> it's not what it's for. Yeah. Anyway, uh, apparently this is a really hip app. Robin Hood, apparently this is a stock trading app. It's not really a stock trading app. I keep hearing about it on uh, hmm. various hip podcasts. Anyway... They are very hip at stock price, at stock trading, but they're very, very, very bad at security. They were storing people's passwords in plain text. Oh, no. And these are financial accounts? Yes. Yes. Stock market trading. So, yeah. Money. Nice. Nice. Yeah, so if you use Robinhood, change your password. And then if it was a reused password you've used anywhere else, change it everywhere else and not the same thing. Notable IoT breaches... Hacked Bluetooth hair straighteners are too hot to handle, is the headline from Naked Security. Wait, 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 wait. Hair straighteners? Why does a hair straightener need to be Bluetooth, Bart? Thank you, Alison. So I have used this as an excuse to remind people that because I can is not a reason to get a smart anything. It's true of anything, you know, Bluetooth-y connected, but it's triple, quadruple true of anything internet connected. Now, in this case, it was only a Bluetooth connectivity issue, but 
the thing was so bad at security that you could crank up the temperature. So the, the owner of the, the hair straightener may have believed that they set it for like, you know, 80 degrees and it, to turn itself off after five minutes. And you, as a neighbor on the other side of the wall, could crank it up to full power, 250 degrees and make it stay on for four hours or whatever. You could literally burn someone's house down. Yikes. So really, unless you needed to be smart... By the dumb equivalent, it's probably safer. Yeah, I went a long time before I did a smart garage door opener, for example. Now, I did yes. end up doing it, but I ended up with some actual use cases where it was actually quite helpful. And it has been. Like, I not know whether mention, my garage door's opener closed. Not, not to mention that you put a lot of effort into figuring out if you trusted the company because you understood that you were placing great trust in a company. yeah. yeah. And, and the same with your smart locks for the other, you know, entranceways uh, yeah. into your residence. Right, right. Um, in terms of news, um, a bunch of three here I want to highlight. Um, so Tinder have added a new feature which they say is designed to protect LGBTQ plus users in hostile nations, is how TechCrunch phrased the headline. Oh, wow. I haven't had time to dig into the detail, but... Given Tinder's role in life and given the realities of some nation's treatment of, you know, humans, LGBTQ people, even if Tinder isn't perfect about this, it's a great thing to see a company like Tinder do. So I want to applaud the effort and I won't comment on how successful the effort is, but it's certainly a good thing to see them do. You don't, I don't remember ever seeing Tinder listed under, hey, this is really cool what they've just done. That's, that's, that's really good to see. Yeah, they generally fly under the radar because they also don't tend to show up as in, oh my God, you won't believe how stupid these people were security-wise. Oh, I thought they have done some stupid things. Have I they? remember that, but I could be I could be misremembering. I Maybe I'm misremembering because I find it very hard to keep all of these different dating apps <laughs> apart in my head. All They're right. all those things I don't use. They're in that giant big bucket of it, I don't care. Um. <laughs> Lockdown have launched the world's first open source firewall for iOS. I haven't had a chance to dig in and play with it, but it seems to use the content blocking APIs to sort of provide system level protection against a bunch of stuff. Like I say, I haven't had a chance to dig into detail. It's very interesting. It's in the it's in the real app store, so it's not hackery. It is real. I'm just not sure. I'm, I remain to be convinced of its usefulness. On the other hand, I think it's darn cool such a thing can exist and that it's workable within the APIs and available in the App Store. So that's why it's down here in suggested reading, because I think people may find it interesting. I just don't know whether to recommend it or not. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I started reading a little bit of it before we got on the air from your show notes. And uh, I I don't quite understand. This is going to sound stupid. But mm-hmm. what do I need a software firewall for on my phone? What problem is yeah, that I don't solving? See, that's where I get stuck, too. It's like, oh, this okay. is cool technologically. I'm not sure I give a bleep. Yeah, one of the developers is the CEO of Duet Display, people who make the thing that lets you use your iPad as a display using a, a cable. It's different yeah, from Luna Display, but it's one of those type of products. Yeah, and see, that I understand the, the usefulness of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of people like software firewalls, but I haven't ever seen to understand how they actually could fix anything. 
they appeal to a certain kind of nerdy people. And I kind of find them fun in the sense of watching what's happening on my computer. But I don't... Yeah, I, I don't get it. But that doesn't mean to say that other people aren't going to be absolutely in love with it. Hence, it's saying here in suggested reading. Okay. By the way, There's I did also a quick an in- search for Tinder and Security Flaw, and there were maybe three or four in the last year that were of note, like photos were not encrypted. Uh, you, there was a way people could get see your, what you were swiping on. Well, that doesn't uh, sound good. No, and there was one about granting access with just a phone number. Yeah. yeah. So a couple of things they probably should have done differently. But it looks like yes, they're, okay. they're turning the corner. Which is, you maybe. know, no company's perfect. So I, I, yeah. they haven't done a Yahoo or a, face, you know, a Yahoo <laughs> or Facebook. We've, we've set the bar way lower now. <laughs> we kind of have, yeah. When, when billions are the normal for leaking passwords. Anyway. Uh, ZDNet then had a really interesting story where Google are apparently offering people $5 vouchers if to be allowed to use their face in a training set for what is probably believed to be some sort of uh, face ID competitor from Google. Hmm. So on the one hand, okay, Google value your data for something. I thought my face might be worth more than a fiver. <laughs> so I don't know how I feel about that one. Anyways, interesting data point. I think the Equifax thing works out to $5 per user too. I think that was one of the one of those was that so. Mm. Well, so I guess Equifax having all of your stuff compromises were the same as your face being used by Google to train some sort of AI. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, lots and lots of other stuff in news. A lot of it has flags on it um, because it affects different countries. But I'm going to yada yada buy it um, and jump to opinion and analysis. Okay. Um, a iMore do really good stuff. I regularly find myself really enjoying this stuff over in iMore. And one of the recent opinion style pieces is about the Great Mac Balancing Act, Catalina Security Explained. Hmm. And basically, it's the balancing act Apple are doing between keeping the Mac the Mac so it can continue to run any software, etc., etc., and keeping the Mac secure. And those things are not, ex- it's not a zero-sum game, but it's not, you know, there's not infinite possibilities. So Apple are having to make some trade-offs. Now, they're being very clever about it and managing to make the trade-offs in such a way that they're, it's not that everything they do costs something, but it's it's not quite free either. So it's it's interesting to analysis of, you know, how they're squaring that circle. Again, hmm. you know, I'm more just do good stuff. So I thought some of our listeners might enjoy having a listen to that. Uh, and then or in terms of... Is it a podcast or it's a read? Uh, it's kind of both. If it's a lot of stuff oh. on iMore, I believe it's one of those ones on iMore where it, it has completely written text and also it was done as a YouTube video. I think that a lot of oh, them okay. are done that way nowadays. Okay. Um, interesting story. Then, in terms, of, it sort of made me think in terms of you know how science can go wrong. But basically, the headline is the five G health hazard that isn't. New York Times piece explaining how research that has been used to get, you know, phones banned from schools and stuff actually just got the science flat out wrong when the research concluded that there was clear evidence of real danger from 5G. There was a fundamental flaw in the experiment. The experiment basically took human organs, actual human organs, and exposed them to the actual radiation from actual 5G devices and concluded that that radiation was harmful to those organs. The flaw is that the organs were not behind skin. Oh. And 
skin is extremely reflective at the frequencies that 5G uses. Oh, how interesting. Huh. Yes, so unless you plan on flaying yourself first, <laughs> the data's garbage. Huh. So, again, it's an interesting story of how science that sounds sensible and that was done with genuinely the best intentions but we must simplify this to get rid of the variables. Therefore, we'll just look at the organs directly. Well, you simplified too far, you know. So they just, as, like, grabbed a kidney and, a, and a, a liver and slapped it on a table and then shot energy at it? Yeah, and noted <laughs> that it was doing serious damage to the DNA. Wow. But again, if you were to take sunlight and shine it at a heart, you'll find that the UV does awful things, but we have skin for that reason. Probably because it hasn't evolved to need to need to do that because it's rarely on the outside. Precisely, yes. <laughs> and the body has, in fact, evolved something very good to go on the outside for the express purpose something of protecting reflect. the insides. It's called your skin. And so I just thought it was fascinating how, how the science went wrong. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Huh. Actually, the next one I meant to put a star next to, but I may have slightly forgotten, apparently. A new scientist had a really interesting article... Anonymized data isn't nearly anonymous enough, and here's how we fix it. It's an interesting article basically saying that with less data points than you think, you can reconstruct people's identity from apparently anonymous data way more accurately than you would expect. Kind of frightening. But uh, some advice for how we should change how we anonymize data to make that not be so easy to reverse, which is good. Uh, Propeller Beanie contains lots of cool stories that I decided these are basically nerdy goodness. And so I put a cool sort of smiley face with sunglasses on them, (laughs) right? These are the kind of security stories that you could spin into a scary headline. All of these attacks are really good fun in a lab. None of these things are of, you know, auga, auga, set your hair on fire, the world is ending sort of territory. None of them, but they are immensely nerdily cool. Before we get to those nerdly cool ones, just another point of note. Um, there is a lot of work going on at the moment to submit important patches into the Linux kernel to make it easier to dual boot Macs with Linux. That's being reported over oh. on Pharonix, which I thought was interesting and worthy of propeller beanieing. So that one's in there. But then we get into the cool stuff. So the problem to be solved is that you're an industrial spy or a nation state actor and there's a computer running, in, say, an Iranian centrifuge or something, and you need to get some data off it. And it's air-gapped completely. Mm-hmm. What can you do? Well, you manage to use a thumb drive or something to sneak your data in. How do you get the, you know, to sneak some malware into the thing? How do you get your data back out? Well, if you can hack, say, their security cameras, which are definitely internet-connected, and you can get some malware onto the machine that's air-gapped, you can effectively blink the keyboard LEDs on and off to transmit the data. Oh, wait, what what keyboard LEDs? NumLock, CapLock, and ScrollLock. I don't have any of those. I got CapsLock. That'll do. The algorithm will work with whatever is available on the keyboard. If you have more lights, you will get more data through. Right, it'll just be faster. It'll be faster, but it will wow. work with as, with as basically between one and three, because that's as far as it tends to go. Okay, and it will that's actually fun depend right there. Yeah, and depending on the keyboard driver, um, and depending on sort of you know the responsiveness, it will crank up the speed as well. So depending on your keyboard, it may be, have to be a little bit slower. Uh, but they've written this, 
it is like a driver that you can put into your malware that will wait until the night and then when no one's watching in theory start flashing those LEDs in order to send a signal it's James Bond stuff right this is not of any actual danger to any of us in our actual lives but I think it's fascinating yeah Not entirely dissimilar, security researchers have found a way to encode data in music so the human ear can't hear it. So again, steganography, but instead of shoving it in a photo, we're now shoving it into music. Now, if there were Allison's ears, you could probably shove in a lot more data than if there were an audiophile's (laughs) ears. But again, someone's written that it works. Um, And then some really cool, so we know now thanks to the joys of the never-ending story of uh, Spectre and Meltdown and all of their many, 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 many offspring, that our current CPU designs are fundamentally flawed. So there's some interesting research detailed on Naked Security about some work going on for new chip architectures, which are designed to make them harder to hack right at the hardware level. Uh, And... One of those designs is something called Morpheus, which basically reshuffles itself every so many milliseconds so that hackers trying to map memory and stuff haven't got a bloody chance because the CPU is reorganizing all the data, apparently at random, at a regular basis. So any of these normal exploits just do not work because if you you know, try to do stuff like return-oriented programming or any of these modern techniques to get around address-based layout randomization you don't get a chance for your attack to work because the whole computer has rearranged itself every, you know, five times a second or whatever. Hence huh. Morpheus, because it's morphing constantly. Okay, that's what... It's cool. Again, <laughs> you know, it's no danger here, right? It's, it's just cool. And that then brings us to some palate cleansing. So first off, I'm just going to take a personal point of privilege here. Um... I have, for a very, very, very long time, one of my personal heroes has been a computer scientist called Alan Turing. Arguably mm-hmm. a mathematician, because when he was around, we hadn't made up the word computer scientist yet. Okay. He is, in my opinion, a rare breed being a gay cryptographer war hero who wow. laid the foundation for all of modern computer science and saved the world from the Nazis. Right. Other than that. Other than that, Yeah. So basically, he it was his mathematical work is really fundamental to our theories of computer science. Like, when you take your theoretical computer science course, the name Alan Turing marches into the conversation quickly and often. He really did figure out how this stuff. He didn't have an actual computing machine for much of the time he was doing his work, which is why he's more of a mathematician. But his work made computing possible. And in a very, very, very specific way, he was a code breaker and he made physical machines to break the Enigma codes. They were computers. They were very special purpose computers, but they were computers. And they allowed the Allies to see into communications that the Nazis were convinced were unbreakable and they were wrong. And as a result, the U-boat menace was dramatically defeated because it's much easier to avoid U-boats when you know where they are. (laughs) Anyway, fascinating chap. So why am I telling you all of this? Uh Britain has a new £50 note on the way. 
And Britain liked to put famous British people on their notes, Charles Darwin and those kind of people. They have quite a few to choose from. The new £50 note will contain a portrait of Alan Turing. That's cool. Yes, I am delighted. So that is, I think that's great. So they are honouring their computer science hero on their currency. And £50 note, that's a substantial note. That's quite the honour, I would say. Yeah, so there didn't used to be a, this is the first time there's been a £50 note? Or did they take somebody else off? I think they redesigned them from time to time. The last time they redesigned the £20 note and they put a female on it and the internet went and did a Gamergate. Oh, good, good, good. Love to see that. So yeah. if uh, if anybody wants to learn about Alan Turing from a um, in the lightest possible way, there's a terrific movie called The Imitation Game starring uh, uh, Cumberbatch. What's his first name? Yes. Uh, Benedict yes, Cumberbatch superb. playing Turing. And it's a it's a terribly sad movie, unfortunately, but it, it gets you a light version of learning about exactly what he did and his uh, his uh, code cracking and stuff. It's really, really a great movie. And if you're in the UK, the place where Alan Turing worked is called Bletchley Park. It is a train ride away from London City, as in a train ride, not an expensive train ride, not a long train ride. And you can walk from the train station in Bletchley to Bletchley Park. Mm. It is now a museum. You can see in action the bomber machines Turing built and Mm. the Colossus, which is one of the first electronically programmable computers that was also built at that facility at the same time. The Colossus is amazing. And there is an actual replica enigma that they used when they were testing their stuff that you can sit down at and encode and decode messages in a real enigma machine. Now, it's a, it's a real fake, as in it's, it's a Second World War era replica made by Polish intelligence. But it's still, you know, an enigma machine. That is and, cool. That, yeah, I don't know how far back your... Um your memory of the the Nosilicast goes, but in 2011, I had Jim Grime come on my show. Uh, It was one of the earlier chit-chats, actually, uh, to talk about, he's the Enigma Project Officer at Cambridge University. Ooh. And so uh, he's he's got this fabulous British voice. He's a real, he does uh, little math videos on math and science type videos on the internet. And I found him and I asked him to come on the show. So 2011 Chit Chat Across the Pond, back when it was embedded, it's in show number 331. I can put a link to that in the show notes. Oh, fabulous. Yes, please. So all of that is already cool about uh, Bletchley Park, but it gets better. They also have a museum called Retro Beep, where they have old computers, not in a display case, running. You can sit down at an original Apple Macintosh or an original Apple One, or an Apple Two, or an ancient mainframe that uses like wireframe memory and stuff. They run, they work, and they encourage you to play with them. Wow, that's fun. And finally, if, like me, you're obsessed with a certain very flawed human being, but very fascinating human being called Winston Churchill... There's also a Winston Churchill Museum, which is a room full of everything that you could possibly imagine that's Winston Churchill memorabilia, including stuff like a teapot in the shape of a tank where Winston Churchill popping out of the top of it is the lid. <laughs> it's bizarre. It's a big room and it's very, very full. All of that in Bletchley Park. All of that one train ride away from London city centre, basically 
get on the tube, get yourself to Euston Station, jump on a train out towards Reading, and they will stop in Bletchley Park, and you can five-minute walk from the train station into Bletchley Park. You will spend the whole day there. You will be not bored for one moment. And then you grab the train back into London and you'll be there by the evening time. When I visited a few years ago with the IT Society from Manus University, I was lucky because there were still actual computers, as in the human beings who were computers Mm. from World War II giving the guided tours. They were all female, of course, because it was a female job in the day. So we had actually. Go ahead. So we had actual World War II computers giving us the tour of Bletchley oh. Park, which was amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. By the way, there's a TV series that was unfortunately short-lived called Bletchley Park that is about the women computers of Bletchley Park that was fantastic. I don't, I don't know if it was BBC or who did it. It was spectacular. Cool. Really, there really interesting. Oh, a lot of palate cleansing. Um, really? Next, Alistair Jenks. Brought to tweeted at me and I think at you as well. Um, XKCD strike again. A standard how people think blah versus how it actually works. So how people think hacking works. Control. We have flown to the USA and breached the target's house. They wrote all of their passwords in a book labeled passwords. The fool. Hey, look, you know how it really works. Hey, look, someone leaked the emails and passwords from the Smash Mouth messages boards. Cool. Let's try them all on Venmo. <laughs> Venmo being a financial app, by the way. Right. Probably right. Yeah. Um and the hover text is good, and I thought I added the hover text into the markdown. Um Oh, oh yes. If someone if only text. someone had warned them that the world would roll them like this. <laughs> yes, uh, don't reuse passwords, folks. XKCD have warned you. Exactly. I may have mentioned it once or twice. <laughs> Finally, then one more on there. I do. This is sort of. I don't think this is going to be news to our listeners, but maybe it's the kind of thing that's fun to share with your friends and family. Would your mobile phone be powerful enough to get you to the moon? Is the question. Basically, Um, how many million times faster is your iPhone than the computer that took man to the moon? Wow. The answer is many, many, many. (laughs) So they're just going to strap some iPhones to a rocket then for to go to the moon after this. Yeah, you see, to me, the power part of that whole equation that was by far the most power thing was that Saturn V, not the computer. But yes, it's interesting how few, how few megahertz, megahertz, how few hertz worth of computing power and how few bytes worth of RAM can actually do the math to get you to the moon and how amazingly overpowered our iPhones are. Right, we're using them to make our faces look old. <laughs> yes, and probably badly in a sexist way. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that's a terrific place for us to stop, Bart. Okie dokie. As I always say, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I'm glad with uh, Bart's help, we got you a good, long, healthy show. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, suggestions, and your recordings by emailing me at allisonatpodfeed.com. I really can use your help. Like I said, we've got some good content for next week, but the following week, I'm still going to be a big disaster mess. Anyway, you can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You are just dying to become a Patreon like uh, like Jill. Well, you can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join the fun of the live show, do not go over to podfeet.com slash live this Sunday night. 
Don't go there next Sunday night. But on August 11th, we will be getting the band back together. And you can go over to podfeet.com slash live and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.